Then let's turn on our Bibles once again to Isaiah chapter 23 together as we continue our journey through the book of Isaiah together. Chapter 23 gives us really sort of the conclusion of this section that began back in chapter 13 of uh, God's pronouncing of, we might say, these judgments among the different Gentile nations, the non-Jewish nations, and uh, the different territories specifically uh, in regards to that. And chapter 23 now brings us to the last territory, particularly which is God's reference uh, to the people of Tyre, which are the the Phoenician people. Now, uh, before I put the map up, just for a frame of reference a little bit, my, my apology in advance, like typical, I'm usually way behind. It would have probably been very helpful to do this from chapter 13 uh, onward, so you would have had maybe a little bit of a geographic <laughs> reference of, of some of the areas that uh, we've actually been talking about a little bit, but I figured, you know, better late than nothing. If nothing else, you get a reference point where the last one is, and if you remember some of the other ones, uh, that can be uh, helpful as well. I, I admit I'm not the best with visuals or whatever, but if this works well tonight, it is smoke machines and lights next week. No, I'm just teasing. Uh, and I figured this is a good way to do this. So uh, this is modern day uh, kind of Israel and its surrounding neighbors. And again, you should be familiar with this just from a geographic standpoint as you look at that. Uh, that's basically a pretty clear indication of what's there today. You know, you have the nation of Israel north to south, um, you can kind of see then where territories like, you know, the West Bank, where the Gaza Strip is, and obviously we know a lot about what's going on right there um, as we hear those things happening now and uh, the events that are transpiring currently. Obviously, to the direct north is uh, the Lebanon area there, and that's when you hear references to uh, Hezbollah and from the north. That's, uh, that's what you're uh, hearing about there, kind of some of the terrorist organization uh, activity that comes out of that area from the north there, and that'll particularly be a little bit of what we're referencing uh, in a few moments here this evening. And of course, you can see to the left is obviously the Mediterranean Sea, and that's westward uh, over towards uh, the direction of Europe and then the United States of America. And then eastward, of course, you have you know Jordan, Syria, and then you know Iran, Iraq, some of those others uh, over to the right as well. And of course, uh, you know Egypt there to the south. And so again, when we think about the children of Israel coming from Egypt and uh, over into Israel, you kind of have a reference point where that's at. The two bodies of water there, of course, the upper one is the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River runs down, and then uh, you can't probably really see it on the map there, but uh, the bigger one down at the bottom is the Dead Sea area, and uh, that kind of gives you an idea of where modern uh, Israel is. Uh, the area we're going to be talking about this evening, the area of Tyre, you can go to the second one, Ryan, uh, this is kind of really somewhat of what in the days we're talking about. We've been looking through kind of what the layout of the land looked like. We've obviously referenced some of these, as you can kind of see there. I can't see from the side real well, so I'm going to use my papers. Um, but as you can kind of see, that, that was somewhat of the layout in the day that Isaiah was speaking and kind of historically uh, in that time period. If you notice down to the bottom left, the area that was kind of uh, somewhat of that area of Gaza, you notice down to the to the red area there uh, on the left of the screen, uh, that was kind of the Philistine area. You hear a lot about the Philistines in the Old Testament and the different cities and territories there. Uh, of course, you can see the divided Israel there, the kingdom of Israel in the north, Judah in the south. But you also can kind of see as you look around kind of from the bottom then circling up to the right, some of these other areas we've referenced, the kingdom of Edom, 
Uh, and then uh, up to the eastern side of the Jordan River, uh, going from south to north, you have Moab and then Ammon uh, and then the kingdom of Aram. And you can kind of see to the top right there, that's kind of a general reference going outward where the uh, Assyrian Empire that we've talked a lot about would kind of have been coming in from. Remember we talked about the Assyrians were kind of the world-dominated empire. Babylon will ultimately conquer them. Uh, but it kind of gives you a general frame of reference where there's at, as well as uh, just to the north in the area of uh, what we're going to look at here tonight as far as chapter 23 of this burden against Tyre. Uh, the people of Tyre were basically the, the Phoenician uh, people. Uh, and so when we're talking about the area of Tyre, we're talking about that area which is modern-day Lebanon, but at that time, it was kind of the Phoenician states, and you had multiple different key cities there, whether it was Tyre, whether it was Sidon, uh, some of the other ones there that, that aren't referenced real, real well. Uh, go to the third one, quick, Rye. And then this is kind of, if you just zoomed in up north, and this is some of what you'll see a few references of in our study tonight, and we could just leave that one up there if you want, Rye, for the rest of 23. When we're done the chapter, you can just kind of take it down. You could just leave it sitting there. But uh, you can kind of see this is uh, kind of that area of the Phoenician states, as they were referred to. And when we're talking about this burden against Tyre, this is kind of what we're talking about, this coastal region of peoples from the area of Phoenicia. They're referenced here as Tyre in our chapter, but it's kind of a description. Tyre was one of the chief cities, which is why, as we've seen in other places, sometimes you have a reference to Damascus, and that's a chief city of the area of Syria. And so again, that's kind of really, we're talking about this whole region. It was a Phoenician people, uh, and they were kind of a very much seafaring people uh, that we're looking at. So, uh, there's my best effort at a map. Hopefully that gives you a little bit of a reference point if that helps a little bit there. But if you look at me in chapter 23 in our text here, this next burden comes against the people uh, of Tyre, again, the chief city among the Phoenicians. And he says, Whale, you ships of Tarshish. Now, this doesn't show up on our map. Tarshish, we believe, uh, is potentially all the way as far over westward reaching, almost to the area of we might know as modern-day Spain. So pretty far all the way to the European area, uh, which gives you an idea of how far, uh, again, these people of Tyre and Sidon, they were a coastal people. They were wealthy, seafaring merchants. They became very prosperous in trade. In fact, they kind of were really the... Uh, I guess you might almost say backbone of the uh, trade and commerce and economy in that day throughout the Mediterranean. Uh, they would travel as far as, as you can see, ships. Now, some believe that could be a reference that they got their ships from Tarshish, the area over far west towards the European area of Spain. Others believe that this is a reference that that is as far as their ships went, that their merchants actually went out and did trading all the way out past the Mediterranean as far over to the European continent area to the ships of Tarchus. Uh, but they traveled long distances across the Mediterranean Sea. They would pick up supplies in many regions, and then they would disperse them. Uh, they were kind of, as I said, the merchants who really drove most of the trading throughout the 
uh, Mediterranean area when we're talking about that whole area as a whole, really all of those things that we saw on our map, even down as far as Egypt, we'll see references in our verses ahead. So he says, Wail, you ships of Tarsus, verse 1, for it is laid waste so that there is no house, no harbor. From the land of Cyprus, it is revealed to them. In other words, this is something that would be seen, and what he's going to describe here is the fall of the Phoenicians and the breaking of the backbone of their super strong economy, which again was like the uh, trade center for the global region at that time. Uh, so again, if we were to, and I don't know if it's a fair <laughs> evaluation these days, but if we would think about like the you know, the American economy and certainly what it had in past and kind of what we might picture the strength of the American economy in, in connection to the rest of the global economy, this was kind of like what the region of Tyre and Sidon, the Phoenician people were like in that day. They were very critical to world commerce, to world trading all around the Mediterranean region. And now this is going to be a description of their downfall. And the tremendous shock that it brings because of the breaking of their backbone as God levies his judgment against these people, so much so that the idea there, verse 1, from the land of Cyprus, it would be seen. Now, when he's talking about the land of Cyprus, you can tell that's an island kind of off to the west of the region of Lebanon that's there still to this day, that even as they were coming back, that even when they got to the area of Cyprus, the idea is word would have already reached that area of the great fall of the people. No doubt they couldn't see it physically with their eyes, but it became revealed to them as soon as they hit Cyprus that of this horrible collapse of the Phoenician people and of the economy and commerce that came out of Tyre and that region. And then he begins to describe that, verse 2. Be still, you inhabitants of the coastland, you merchants of Sidon, that was the next chief city north of Tyre, whom... He says, whom those who cross the sea have filled, and on the great waters, the grain of Sihor, the harvest of the river, now that's a reference to the Nile River, is her revenue, and she is a marketplace for the nations. Now, again, what he's describing there, verse 3, these ships would go out, and Egypt was a predominant grain supplier for the entire Mediterranean region. And so these ships would dip down uh, to the far south. They would pick up grain, this area where he references the grain of Sihor in verse 3. That's a territory in the eastern part of Egypt around the reference of the Nile River. So he's describing how these ships would go down. They would fill up with tremendous amounts of grain, and then they would go around and trade and disperse that grain all throughout the Mediterranean region. And he's describing how that territory, particularly down in Egypt, became the marketplace for the nations. They, they were a lot of where uh, the exports were going out of from that region of Egypt. They were like the marketplaces feeding supply of grain predominantly and other things to the rest of the surrounding nations in the Mediterranean. Verse 4, he says, Be ashamed, O Sidon, for the sea has spoken. The idea is a declaration of judgment because, again, these were seafaring merchants. They were a coastal people. For the strength of the sea, saying, I do not labor nor bring forth children, neither do I rear young men nor bring up virgins. Now, the picture there is, is production has ceased. 
you know, bringing forth new children, yielding. The idea is the, pro the productivity that was once happening from that region, it's now being stopped. No more children being born, no more production happening. That's kind of the imagery there. Uh, he says, verse 5, when the report reaches Egypt, they also will be in agony at the report of Tyre. Cross over to Tarshish, wail, you inhabitants of the coastland. Is this your joyous city, whose antiquity is from ancient days? Again, it had been an area that had been around for a very long period of time. It had been a strong fixture of commerce and commercialism and a strong economy for a long period of time. One of those kind of economies that you look and say, there is no way that economy will ever fail. Not that economy. It had that kind of a long-term reputation, and now it's going to collapse rather quickly. They say, is this your joyous city whose antiquity is from ancient days, whose feet carried her far off to dwell? Who has taken this counsel? In other words, who, who's done this? How did someone bring down that economy? How's that possible? Again, is it... It's a complete shock to all the inhabitants of the region. Who has taken this council against Tyre, the crowning city whose merchants are princes, whose traders are the honorable of the earth? And then here's the answer why the economy of Tyre and the Phoenician people collapsed. Verse 9 says, the Lord of hosts has purposed it. In other words, it was purposed by God. God determined that economy is over. And God himself sovereignly orchestrated events, allowed circumstances, we're not told what they are, but the downfall of the economy was something that God purposed and that God then ultimately brought to pass in his sovereignty, he says, verse 9, to bring to dishonor the pride of all glory. Again, they were very proud of their glorious, strong economy, their commercialism. They were a very you know, wealthy people to bring to dishonor the pride of all glory, to bring into contempt all the honorable of the earth. So notice, it's a complete shock, and this is kind of the picture that's being portrayed here. That's why we saw up in verse 5 that when the report of the fall of the Phoenician people and their strong commercialism and economy and all their trading, that when their fall comes to pass, when report of that reached Egypt, it says the agony... In other words, the Egyptians were shocked by this. How is this possible? How could the economy of Tyre have collapsed? I mean, no one ever you know, believed this could possibly happen. We might have heard rumors of it, but it just it's an utter shock that the economy has collapsed. But notice the whole purpose for it, we're told in verse 9, is it was a part of the sovereign purpose and plan of God for his greater things that he was doing. And it majority of the reason, we're told in verse 9, was to bring to dishonor their pride. They had become very proud in their economic situation. They had become very arrogant, and they thought that their wealth and their luxury and their opulence and their strong economy was so strong that it could never fail. And God took them down because of their pride. And again, we know that pride is a very, very dangerous thing that leads to the downfall of individuals, but it also at times leads to the downfall of nations. 
And this was the case here and the reason why there was the collapse, particularly of the people of Tyre and that region and their economy. Verse 10, he says, overflow through your land like the river, O daughter of Tarshish, there is no more strength. The idea is overflowing like everyone trying to escape. He stretched out his hand over the sea. He shook the kingdoms. The Lord has given a commandment against Canaan. Now, the idea there is the, the region, the area of the Canaan land is what that's a reference to, he says, to destroy its strongholds. And he said, God said, you will rejoice no more. O oppressed virgin daughter of Sidon, arise, cross over to Cyprus, but there also you will have no rest. So again, the idea there is they could try and flee from where they were, run off to Cyprus, but God says, even if you go there, there's no escaping the judgment that was coming. They could not run from the judgment of God. They could not avoid the judgment of God. And look, whenever God determines judgment, there is no escaping the judgment of God. There is no avoiding the judgment of God. When you have got to a point, whether as an individual or a nation or whatever it may be, where the disciplinary action or literally the judgment of God is going to come, uh, you have pushed to a place, to a limit where God has to judge, and it is his justice, and it must be executed, and it must be carried out. And this is what God's saying here. You can flee. You can run over to Cyprus and, and try and flee across the Mediterranean, but he says, even there you will find no rest. So as you look at the downfall of what's described here, tragically, you see this very strong system of commercialism and God brings it down incredibly fast, incredibly fast. And when we look at this, in some ways, to me, it's, it's much like what the Bible even describes in the latter days of a coming crash of a great Babylonian commercial system, an economic system that the Bible says will exist in the last days. And in the book of uh, Revelation, chapter 18, it tells us that God brings it all down literally in one day. And in one day, God brings down this great economic superpower, and everyone, it says, is shocked. And they can't believe how this is possible, but because it was a part of something God was purposing in his judgment, it comes to pass. And when I read this fall of Tyre and the Phoenician people, it reminds me much of what Revelation 18 describes is going to happen with the system of Babylon and the crushing of that economy uh, that will exist in that day as well. Very, very quickly will be its downfall. He goes on, verse 13, to then say, behold, the land of the Chaldeans. Now, remember, that was the Babylonians, and they didn't even really have much power at this time. They were kind of somewhat of a very insignificant people. The Assyrians were the dominating empire. This people, which was not, Assyria founded it for wild beasts of the desert. They set up its towers. They raised its palaces and brought it to ruin. Wail, you ships of Tarshish, for your strength, he says again, is laid waste. Now, he references Babylon there, and most likely the reason why Babylon gets brought into that reference of the bringing down of the area of Tyre and Sidon is we know ultimately that when Babylon comes to power, that Nebuchadnezzar goes down and lays siege against the city 
of Tyre, which was sort of, again, their chief city where all their finances were tied to. Uh, and it, it was from that area where he lay siege to the city for, we believe, somewhere around 12 to 13 years before he's able to conquer it. But part of what begins to happen in that time, because it was taking so long for the siege to overcome the city, the people of Tyre, very strategically, what they did was there was sort of a mass of land somewhere between a half mile to a mile offshore. You may hear at times of mainland uh, Tyre or inland Tyre and then the island of Tyre. Uh, and it, it's not shown up here on the map or whatever. But what they did is over this period of like a decade when they were being sieged by Nebuchadnezzar is they very strategically just moved all the wealth off of the mainland city and stockpiled it out onto the island and basically built a fortress out there on the island. And when Nebuchadnezzar finally conquered the, the actual city of mainland Tyre, all the money was gone. <laughs> all the wealth had been moved out over to the other side. The city itself became ravaged, but much of the city went out there. But of course, as I said, you can never ultimately escape the judgment of God because then in the days uh, of the Greek empire under Alexander, ultimately Alexander conquered the island city of Tyler by basically building a land bridge out to the ultimate uh, island location and still completely conquered them and took away all of their wealth and basically broke their back. So it was simply a matter of time and it was progressive, but when the fall came, it came and it broke quickly and God was able to dethrone them rather fast. Verse 15, he describes here something of a, of a period of time by saying, because again, Tyre was conquered but then did revive, we know that historically, and it seems this is what's being alluded to. He says, now it shall come to pass in that day that Tyre will be forgotten 70 years, according to the days of one king. But at the end of 70 years, it will happen to Tyre as in the song of the harlot. Now, apparently, maybe this was a song in the day. Take a harp and go about the city, you forgotten harlot, Make sweet melodies, sing many songs that you may be remembered. Now, the picture there of the song of the harlot is like a harlot that nobody wants to hire for service anymore. I know that's a little bit of a, a grotesque image there. So what she does, it's like an older uh, prostitute, someone who's no longer interested in the services of that prostitute. So now she has to go around with a, a song and a dance to basically try and get people to engage in business with her. And so God's portraying Tyre in this way, that, that their, their economy has been broken, and now they're struggling to, in a sense, reestablish themselves economically, and like a harlot going around trying to draw in business, they're trying to revive themselves. Verse 17 says, and it shall be at the end of 70 years that the Lord will deal with Tyre, and again, ultimately, they do revive to a degree, she will return to her hire and commit fornication with all the kingdoms of the world on the face of the earth. So again, there were a few different falls and if you would somewhat say resurrections uh, of Tyre, even as we alluded to, you had the Assyrians come and then again, somewhat of a resurfacing, Nebuchadnezzar, they moved the wealth off the shore and then Alexander came in during the time of the Greek empire. So there were sort of these multiple phases where this happened. Now, 
As you read verse 18, most commentators tend to believe that this is a reference to something that projects outward uh, to the latter days, maybe even all the way down to a description of the time either in the days of the church age when Christianity reached the territory of Tyre. If you remember Jesus, even in the Gospels, at times we're told that he went up into the region of Tyre and Sidon. At times, Jesus went up into Lebanon and he did some ministry there, the Bible tells us, as well as Jesus. Remember on one occasion when he was giving a rebuke, he said, if the miracles that had been done in your community that were done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. So we know in the days of Jesus, as well as in the early church, that the gospel did permeate into the area of, of the north in Lebanon, as well as we know many of the uh, other nations will at times become favorable toward Yahweh God during the time of the kingdom age when Jesus comes back, sets up his kingdom, and reigns on the earth. And so it seems that perhaps verse 18 is a reference now going from that time way out into a further time period where he says of Tyre in verse 18 as the chapter concludes, her gain and her pay, that is the wealth of Tyre, will be set apart for the Lord. Now, is it set apart for the Lord because they set it apart for the Lord? Or is it set apart for the Lord in that God just intervenes as God can do and basically say that money that you have been using for wrong purposes or for evil purposes, the world does mine and everything in it, and God, in a sense, seizes that wealth and says, I'm going to set that apart for my purposes to do things for his kingdom or for his people. We can't be certain, but he says their wealth becomes set apart for the Lord. It will not be treasured nor laid up for her gain, that is for selfish purposes, for her gain will be for those who dwell before the Lord to eat sufficiently and for fine clothing. So God channels those resources away from their selfish use and he channels those resources, and now the resources and the wealth of these really people that were using them at one time for pagan purposes, now that money is being used, notice, for the people of God, set apart for the Lord, for those who dwell before the Lord, to be able to eat sufficiently and have fine clothing. In other words, it's wealth that then gets channeled and used to sustain the people of God, to help the workers of God, to even help to a degree. It's describing somewhat of the work of God to be able to flourish. And what a, a cool thing to realize that God is more than able to provide for his people, and he's more than able to provide for his work. God can even go take money from pagan people if he wants to. <laughs> he has no problem doing whatever he has to do to provide sufficiently for his people and for his work. You know, I love sometimes images like this because it reminds us that God can no doubt dethrone people, God can bring about a turn of events, and God can use the most unique ways to bring provision for his own people. It's absolutely amazing. And here, again, what this is exactly referring to, I don't think we can be dogmatic, but certainly here we see a people who at one time were a pagan people, they did not serve Yahweh God, they didn't serve the Lord, they were using their money selfishly, and now God orchestrates something and takes those same resources and channels them in a way to actually be set apart for his work and for his people and even to provide and care for his people. What a great encouragement, look, whatever you're facing to realize God's more than able 
to find a unique way to come through for you, to provide for you. He is not limited in his options. It's always the Lord providing. What I find is that God likes to change the funnel that he utilizes. Sometimes we get really focused on the funnel, and the money always comes through that funnel, or the provision predominantly comes through that funnel, and sometimes God says, you're too focused on the funnel. So he changes the funnel. (laughs) And it's still him pouring the provision, but sometimes he'll just change the funnel to keep our dependency upon him and to know ultimately he's our source and who we have to rely on ultimately. Now, as we come to chapter 24, you'll notice here that a shift changes, and now we go from addressing specific nations to God starts to speak now about judgment on a global level. In fact, in chapter 24, we'll see the term earth show up at least 15 times, so God's talking about judgment now on a global stage. So he's talking about something much more broad now, and it seems very clearly that God's really referencing events that will happen during what we've been talking about on Sunday mornings in our study in Revelation regarding the time of, Revel- uh, of, the, time of the tribulation. And it seems this is a very clear image of some of the judgment of God falling during that seven-year period of tribulation when God is bringing about his judgment, not against one nation, but against the whole world bringing judgment upon the earth because of the rejection of Christ and God's offer of salvation and really just the evil and rebellion of mankind. So chapter 24, he says, Behold, the Lord makes the earth empty and makes it waste. He distorts its surface and scatters abroad its inhabitants. You can tell a description there of, we might say, global catastrophe. And as we've already started seeing in our study in Revelation in chapter 6, the events that start to unfold, right? Some of the heavy things that happen uh, in the early period of the tribulation, whether it's God removing peace from the earth and great violence breaking out, whether it's the global outbreak of illness, whether it's, again, uh, the collapsing of economies and supply chain issues and lack of food resources and starvation, or whether it's cataclysmic things, you know, earthquakes or seemingly asteroid showers coming down and hitting and devastating the earth, global catastrophes where the earth's surface is distorted, its inhabitants are scattering, they're running because they're under the judgment of God. He says, verse 2, and it shall be as with the people, so with the priests. The picture here you'll notice is the idea is no distinctions. Nobody gets special preferential treatment here. As with the people, so with the priest. As with the servant, so with the master. As with the maid, so with the mistress. As with the buyer, so with the seller. As with the lender, so with the borrower. As with the creditor, so with the debtor, the land shall be entirely emptied and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. The idea is this word of judgment, of catastrophe. And notice that social status is of no value in that day. You can't buy yourself out of the judgment of God. You may be able to utilize your resources if you're wealthy now to pay people off or to pay something to go away or to pay a problem to disappear. You can't bribe God. You may have power as a person on this earth in this day where you can use your power or your position or your you know, status in life to get people to give you special treatment or to exclude yourself from hard things that others are going through. 
That doesn't work with God because the Bible says that God shows partiality to no man. And so it doesn't matter to God whether someone is a king or whether someone is the poorest person in a third world country. God says everyone. It's a spiritual issue. It has nothing to do with social status or economic situations. God says as with one, as with the other. Again, this is a judgment upon the earth because of the spiritual rejection of God's son, Jesus Christ. He says, verse four, the earth mourns and fades away. The world languishes and fades away. The haughty people of the earth languish. And the idea there is, is like the world just you know, struggling in, in its great failure, enduring its hardship. It's a picture of you know, great grief on a global level. People and the earth itself, the physical earth mourning and languishing. Verse 5, he says, the earth is also defiled under its inhabitants. Now take notice, this is a key reason why ultimately the judgment of God finally arrives. Because God measures time, how? Morally. That's how God measures time. Morally. Remember, God says in his word, my spirit will not strive with man forever. In other words, God is patient. God is merciful, but whether you take the first cataclysmic flood judgment under Noah's day, God graciously waited and waited and warned and waited and warned and waited and waited and waited, but eventually the iniquity of mankind, their barbaric cruelty, their violence, their sexual perversion, the things that they were doing became so severe and grotesque that wherever the you know brim is where finally it just overflows and then judgment must come where God's not just anymore. God's not righteous anymore. When it reaches that point morally, then the judgment of God must come. And I think it's very interesting that he's describing here, verse five, that the earth is defiled. Why? Under its inhabitants. In other words, the earth is so defiled. The reason? Because of the inhabitants that are on the earth, and we're supposed to rule over the earth and subdue it, and the way that we are treating the earth under our judgment and rulership as human beings is we are defiling this globe. And are we not? Defiling the globe with our filth and the immoral things that we're doing, and, and, and we are creating a cesspool of immorality on this planet. And this is the problem that God's saying that became the contributing reason. Now, he gives almost as if sort of somewhat in verse 5, like three descriptions of how the inhabitants of the earth were defiling the earth that led to the judgment of God that's ultimately coming to fall. He says, first of all, verse 1, because they've transgressed the laws. That's a picture of God's laws, the word of God, just simply, generically. And the word transgress, remember, speaks of a, a defiant rebellion. It's not, man, I tried to do what was right, but I just, I messed up. Transgression speaks of the line is drawn in the sand and someone says, please do not step over that line. And, and you just stiffen your neck and say, I don't care what you say. I'm stepping over it anyway, because I want to, because that feels good to me or because it's what I desire or I prefer, and I don't have to listen to your laws. I don't have to follow your boundaries. I don't want, and this is the idea. God in his law, God's word, he gives us boundaries. And he says, look, these are healthy boundaries for human beings as inhabitants on the earth. 
created in my image and likeness. I know what's healthy for you. These are healthy boundaries. Live within these boundaries, within my will. These are healthy boundaries morally. These are healthy boundaries for just how to do life properly so you don't defile yourself and destroy yourself mentally, physically as human beings. Live within these boundaries and we look at God's boundaries and we don't struggle. We transgress them. We just brazenly, we look at God's boundaries. I'm not living according to those boundaries. Nobody's going to set parameters on my life. I'm going to live however I feel, and whatever I want, I'm entitled to that. And here God says this was a part of what contributes ultimately to the defilement of the earth by its inhabitants. We transgress the laws, the governing boundaries of God for ourselves on this planet. He also says, secondly, they've changed the ordinance. Now, isn't that interesting? The ordinance. When we think about ordinances, the first one that's very obvious that comes to us in the Word of God is the ordinance of marriage. That before even the fall of sin, the only ordinance technically we have as human beings that comes from the other side of the fall is marriage. That's the only ordinance. Government comes after the fall. The church comes after the fall. Every other form of ordinance that we have, even as human beings, comes on the other side of the entry of sin into the world. The only ordinance that we've received from God that is, in a sense, the purest, most undefiled form was marriage. When God created male and female, and God said it's not good for man to be alone, and he creates Eve as a helper, a life fulfilling partner for Adam, that man and woman would then come together, be fruitful and multiply, and the establishment of marriage of one male and one female in a lifelong monogamous commitment to repopulate the earth, to, in a sense, replace themselves, to be fruitful and multiply, to live together within the healthy design of God's boundaries for the ordinance of the basis of family. And again, we look at what we have done in this world and the, uh, I mean, the, you know, the, the warp speed now of progression of sexual perversion. I mean, what years ago, set aside the word of God, you just give me a few decades back, even just traditional values. People didn't even have to be Bible-believing Christians, but people just understood healthy traditional values of a man and a woman, a male and a female, the need of a mother and a father in a family. And, and it was just, and now, I mean, we have just gone warp speed to distort and pervert every single thing possible. And again, it is a, it's a Romans 1 thing where God says, this is proper according to nature, but yet what humanity is doing is we are transgressing the ordinance of what is given by God in creation as a natural way of a male and a female together. Paul describes in Romans chapter 1, let me just reacquaint you, he says this, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. In other words, they didn't want to submit to his authority, nor were they thankful. Now, when man rejects God as his authority and God as creator and God is the one that they're accountable to, this is what happens. They became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Isn't that interesting? We're wise. We're progressive. God says, no, you're fools. 
You're not progressing, you're digressing, God would say. You're regressing into insanity because your minds are confused and your hearts are darkened and your judgment's polluted. Interesting, God says, professing to be wise, they think they're so wise, creative and progressive, they become fools. They change the glory of the incorruptible God and the image made of corruptible men. He then goes on in the chapter to describe, therefore, because of this rejection, he says, God gave them up. That is, he gave them over to their own strong perversion and re rebellion. He gave them up, listen to what he says, to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie. And they worshiped and served the creature, again, self-worship, whatever I please, whatever I perversely desire, I worship myself. I don't submit to God. They worship the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. And then he goes on to say this, for even their women exchange the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, the man having the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful, receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do things which are not fitting. See, any human being, despite their struggle, and we all have struggle in different ways with sin, right? But I would venture to say the insanity is, is that we're now quantifying certain sins as if they're no longer sins, but you can't translate that over into every other area. At some point, are we going to legalize and endorse and have murderer's month? Are we? Or what? Murder's wrong. It's always been wrong. We've known in our conscience that it's always been wrong. Are we at some point going to say some people are, they're just born murderers? So therefore, we shouldn't tell them it's wrong. That's, that's just how they were born. And so they should be able to act in that way. They should be able to behave. In fact, we shouldn't even punish them. In fact, we should legalize murder. I mean, see, the insanity of that is something to show you how debased the mind is, but what we have done in this very bizarre way that is, it's not reasonable is we've isolated one area and we're saying, but we should go against nature in this area and change the ordinance in this area and, and, and God is saying, this is leading to the defilement of the globe. Again, a person in good, normal, healthy conscience cannot live in a homosexual practice and lifestyle and not constantly be aware to a degree that what they are doing is contradicting what's natural. It's not natural. The anatomy, you go to anatomy class, the plumbing matches, male, female. I'm not being gross, but most of us are adults in the room. That's natural. The opposite, it's, it's against nature. But God says when mankind begins to transgress my laws and they begin to change the ordinances, marriage, man, woman, again, 
he says they're committing to the defiling of its inhabitants of the earth. And he says they've also, thirdly, verse 5, broken the everlasting covenant. Now, this phrase, the everlasting covenant, kind of a little bit difficult to pin down because the first time the phrase shows up is in Genesis chapter 9, interestingly enough, with Noah right after the flood, where God establishes the rainbow as a sign and a symbol, and he calls it there of the everlasting covenant that he would never judge the world globally by flood again. Not that he wouldn't judge the world globally, but that the, the channel he would use to bring judgment would not be through a flood. The Bible tells us that it's coming through fire the second time. But God says there his everlasting covenant and the sign of the rainbow was something that he would bring judgment, but that he wouldn't bring judgment in the same way he did in Noah's day. We then find that same phrase, however, in other places. In Genesis 17, you find a reference to the uh, Abrahamic covenant that Israel was God's chosen nation in Genesis 17. And there's that phrase that it's called there an everlasting covenant. We see the phrase show up again in the covenant with David in 2 Samuel 23, where Messiah would come through David's family lineage and that the throne of David's family would ultimately be one which is ruled upon forever. And it's also referred to as the everlasting covenant. And then again, in Jeremiah, we'll see, as well as Hebrews 13 says it specifically, that the new covenant that we know of the covenant with Jesus Christ is also referred to as the everlasting covenant. And God says here, you've broken the everlasting covenant. What he's no doubt just indicating is, I keep making covenants and promises with you as the people, and you keep breaking the covenants. I keep trying to establish promises and covenants, but humanity is the one guilty, not God, of breaking covenants by rejecting God. What covenant's being referenced there? I, you know, we see it a few different times. Verse 6 says, therefore, the curse has devoured the earth. And boy, if we think of the curse of sin, that's incredibly true, is it not? The curse has devoured the earth, and those who dwell in it are desolate. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men are left in it. Interesting, the inhabitants of the earth in the time of the tribulation, it speaks of them here of the inhabitants of the earth being burned suffering the torment of fire and heat. Revelation 16 says, Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent or give him glory. Is that a sad testimony to the hardness of a human heart? Literally scorched? with heat and burned in their flesh from the sun as a part of the, 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 the you know, judgments happening, the bowls being poured out on the earth, men being burned, but yet still rejecting God, still not repenting because, again, their love of sin and their hatred of God just persisting onward. He says, verse 6 as well, and few men are left in it. The idea is a great decrease of the population on the earth. Again, we've seen already in Revelation chapter 6, just in that first chapter, 6 through 18 gives us great description of the tribulation and already 25% of the population of the globe being reduced of the judgments of God. Later on, we'll see another third of the population. Now we're up to almost 50% of the earth's population being rid at that time. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 24, unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. Again, it's an act of God's mercy that the seven years alone is enough because the entire earth 
apparently would have been ridden of inhabitants if it wasn't God's mercy in the midst of judgment. Verse 7, the new wine fails, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh, and the mirth of the tambourine ceases, the noise of jubilant ends, and the joy of the harp ceases. They now shall not drink wine with a song. Strong drink is now bitter to those who drink it. He says the city of confusion, now the city there is a reference no doubt to cities, but a reference to, again, a city being in a great party. And that's the picture, as you can tell, he's describing here. You know, mankind like having a, a citywide celebration, drinking and getting drunk. The city of confusion is now broken down. Every house is shut up so that none go in it. And there is a cry for wine in the streets, but all joy is now darkened. The mirth of the land, the the partying, the jubilation, eat, drink, and be merry, says that's all now gone. It's gone. He says, because the city is left in desolation, verse 12, its gate is stricken with destruction. When it shall be thus in the midst of the land among the people, it shall be like the shaking of an olive tree, like the gleaning of grapes when the vintage is done. Again, the idea there is God is going to shake things up on the earth. Hebrews 12 says, everything that can be shaken will be shaken on the globe in such a way whereby humanity will realize what God is doing. Again, just to think of that image, right? The very fact that, that humanity thinks, oh, we're just having a big party and whatever and forget God and, and, and God, it's like us taking a snow globe and God goes, uh, try that a little bit down there. <laughs> and just shakes everything up on the planet by bringing these cataclysmic judgments in such a ways we saw Revelation chapter 6, remember the end of it, where men are running into caves and trying to hide themselves from the terrifying judgments of God coming on the planet. And in our picture here, he's describing how all the eating, drinking, getting drunk, uh, none of that's working anymore. And, and look, I look at this and there's a part of me as he keeps using this analogy of you know, drinking and celebrating and kind of drunkenness, but none of that is working anymore. I think it's just a reminder, as we said not only earlier, that you can't only not hide from the judgment of God, but what he's kind of conveying there is, is you can't, you can't inebriate yourself and get drunk as your coping mechanism and just ignore what's happening on, going on when the planet's falling apart. And look, I say that for this reason, because sadly, one of the things that's leading to one of the great destructions in our nation is whether it's the overconsumption of alcohol and drunkenness or whether it's substance abuse and drugs, we have so many people who has a wrong coping mechanism on this earth are trying to basically just, in a sense, cope with the problems of the world by staying in a drunken stupor or you know, utilizing drugs in wrong ways to cope with the problems of this world. And that is not a right coping mechanism. And that's not going to work long-term anyway. God's saying in that day, look, when things are falling apart, you're not going to be able to just go get drunk and forget about it. <laughs> you're not going to be able to somehow escape from it. And so sad that, you know, as a part of what's causing our nation and our world to fall apart now is the same kind of thing. You know, we'll just ignore what's going on. And God says you can't ignore it because it's something that must be in a sense, confronted. Verse 14, he says, they shall lift up their voice. They shall sing for the majesty of the Lord. They shall cry aloud from the sea. Therefore, he says, glorify the Lord in the dawning light. 
that the name of the Lord God of Israel in the coastlands of the sea. You notice how we find throughout the word of God, certainly good times to see this again. He's referred to many times as the Lord God of Israel. The Lord God of Israel. That he's the God of Israel, this same God who's the God that we know. And here he says, verse 15, I like that little phrase, glorify the Lord in the dawning light. I have that noted. It's just a good little exhortation to our hearts. Glorify the Lord in the dawning light. You know, the best way in a day that was very, very dark, that's the conditions he's describing. He says, here's one of the things you can do if you're living in that time period, which I don't plan to. I don't think you do either. <laughs> but for those who will be, and if you're here tonight and you're rejecting Christ and you plan to be, in a very dark time, he says, glorify the Lord in the dawning light. That's how you survive through dark times. You give glory to the Lord. You spend time with the Lord. You worship the Lord. You look to the Lord at the dawning of every new day because that's the only way you'll get through the day. That's the only way you get through hard times when things are falling apart. Verse 16, he says, From the ends of the earth we have heard songs saying, Glory to the righteous. But I said, Isaiah, I am ruined, ruined. Woe to me, the treacherous dealers have dealt treacherously. Indeed, the treacherous dealers have dealt very treacherously. Now, what Isaiah is describing there is his own grief over, again, remember, everything he's seeing. Because as we said before, remember, he's seeing these things. Now, we've saw some things that described in the book of Revelation. We'll see way more. But imagine he, he's getting spiritual images of this stuff. He's seeing the carnage and the destruction and the devastation that's happening on the planet. And when he sees this, he says, some are saying glory to the righteous, but he says, this is ruining me. Woe is me, he's saying. This is just something that was overwhelming him to see the horrible things that were coming upon the globe and upon humanity. He says, verse 17, fear and the pit and the snare are upon you. Notice, O inhabitants of the earth. And it shall be that he who flees the noise of fear shall fall into the pit. So here the idea again is trying to escape. You flee from the noise of fear and then you fall into a pit. And he who comes up from the midst of the pit, oh, I got out of the pit, let me run again, shall be caught in the snare. For the windows on high are open and the foundations of the earth are shaken. Again, you just kind of picture there from above and below. The windows from on high are open. Doesn't that sound very uh, much like a reminder of what happened in the days of Noah? The windows from on high are open. Again, God's opening the windows because judgment's coming from above. And who's controlling the foundations of the earth? God is. So the windows from on high open, the foundations shaking from underneath. How? We know many earthquakes are coming in the time of the tribulation. That's what the next verses seem to describe. The earth is violently broken. The earth is split open, shaken exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard and totter like a hut. Its transgression shall be heavy upon it, and it will fall and not rise again. It will be the final fall. God pictures the earth, the globe, tottering, stumbling around like a drunken person in a stupor, can't get its bearings. You know, it's very interesting. They say, and again, I'm certainly not someone who knows everything about science, they say that every so many years that our earth already 
is starting to go into a degree of a tottering uh, maneuver every once in a while. When God first created everything, it's almost like a top, right? You, 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 you spin off a top and, and the thing gets going. But then what happens when you spin a top, I know I'm probably dating myself, but some of you remember when you play with those kids, right? You spin a top, but what eventually happens after you, you spin a top and you watch it, but as it's about to slow down, eventually it starts to, to go into like a totter or a wobble right before it finally, everything shuts down in the spin. And God's picturing kind of the earth in that way. As these multiple great earthquakes happen, the earth eventually, God says, it starts to go into this weird wobble as everything is about to close up and about to shut down as these great earthquakes will somehow impact the globe to a degree where it will go out of its proper function as a part of God's ultimate judgment on the planet. Verse 21, it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will punish on high the host of the exalted ones and on the earth, the kings on the earth. So notice here, it seems to be a reference, the host of exalted ones, God punishing spiritual forces, spiritual princes and spiritual rulers, the host of exalted ones, and also punishment on the kings of the earth. Now, that would make sense if he is talking about the punishing of spiritual rulers because verse 22, he makes this allusion saying they will gather together as prisoners are gathered in the pit and will shut up the prison and after many days they will be punished. You know, it's interesting that when we read Revelation chapter 20, it describes that one of the things that will happen with Satan is it says that Satan will be bound and cast into a bottomless pit where there he will be kept for a thousand years during the time of the kingdom age after the tribulation, and then he will be released once again. So again, perhaps Isaiah may be seeing some of that. He describes some of these rulers, and he says they will be shut up in the prison. Again, describing a pit, uh, being punished in that way. Maybe he's alluding to those events of Revelation 20. Then the moon will be disgraced and the sun will be ashamed. And when will that happen? The moon be disgraced and the sun no longer be needed in a sense. Why? Because the true sun, not the S-U-N, but the S-O-N, the son of God, for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his elders, it's literally before his ancients in the Hebrew, he'll reign gloriously. So thankfully, what happens at the end of these horrible judgments on the earth is ultimately the Lord himself returns in the second coming where you and I come back with him in our glorified bodies, returning back with him to this earth. He enters into Mount Zion, sets up his throne there in Jerusalem and rules and reigns for a thousand years, the kingdom age as we know it, and we reign together with him. Thank goodness, some bright spot <laughs> at the end of all that darkness ultimately comes to pass. No doubt that's why, as in chapter 25, and we're not going there, don't panic. He says, oh, Lord, my God, I will exalt you and praise your name. Because finally, everything gets made right. Everything that's wrong gets dispersed of, and everything that's right will ultimately come to pass, and we will get to celebrate the wonderful things that God has done and will do. Let's